Hello, and welcome to Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. And today it's just the two of us to discuss a topic about insects, because I noticed that we haven't had an entomology episode since we talked to Aaron, which was fully 20 episodes ago. Unacceptable. Yeah. Unacceptable. So today I wanted to bring you here, Tessa, to discuss the question of where do insects go when it's cold outside? I'm interested to know how much you know about this topic going in. I know like in broad strokes that, you know, different insect species use different strategies. Some of them are basically able to, one way or another, preserve themselves over cold temperatures. I know some are essentially just annual that, you know, they'll lay eggs and then they'll just kind of die when it gets too cold and the next generation will hatch in the spring. I know some, like monarchs, are migratory, but like I don't know any specifics beyond that. Well, as always, Tessa, you're informed and you're tall. And those are the two things that people love the most about you. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> it Basically, as you said, it, it's only fitting for insects for there to be a diversity of strategies for dealing with the cold. And one of the best strategies for dealing with cold is living in a place where it doesn't get cold to begin with. Right. Which is really just the highest concentrations of diversity in insects is often in tropical and subtropical environments because insects don't have to deal with that external limitation of low temperatures. But even in cold or temperate places, particularly in temperate areas that go through warm and cold cycles, we see more insects in part of the year and many fewer insects in another part of the year. And why are cold temperatures a problem for insects? Really, to begin with, you might ask, why does freezing kill insects? But freezing also kills you, a human person. Yeah. So the real question is, why do insects die at much higher temperatures than many other animals? For example, humans. And why is cold temperature in general a much higher deterrent to insect activity than e.g. human activity. I'm going to guess it's partially due to the size. You know, square cube law, bigger you are, the slower you lose heat. But also mammals and birds are endothermic. Reptiles also have some control, although not as much. Insects, as I understand it, don't really have much at all. So they have less margin when it comes to dealing with cold temperatures. This is all fantastic. So we actually, earlier this year, we talked a little bit about freezing damage and how cold temperatures hurt organic bodies when we talked about cryonics mm -hmm. and cryopreservation. And a lot of the problem, as one quoted scientist in an article put it, you can think of insects as basically small bags of water. And you can also think of larger bodies as essentially bigger bags of water, where a lot of the problem is that we are chock-a-block full of water, and water loves to freeze. And when it freezes, it expands. That freezing and the formation of ice crystals can cause all kinds of damage internally because of multiple reasons, but among them, that difference in volume between liquid water and frozen water. So that's part of it. But then I, I really wanted to get into, I spent a couple hours, honestly, looking for answers, very precise answers to what is happening 
when you are freezing to death, you as a human person, I'm not speaking to any sentient insects who may be listening. When you are freezing to death, your core body temperature drops, which starts preventing organs from functioning normally. And the temperature at which your body is kept, because human bodies, hypothermia is actually defined as your internal temperature dropping below still a pretty high, it's like still in the 90s, right? Because it's not a sort of a sense of it being cold in the sense of when we touch something and it feels cold but rather is it sufficiently lower than your normal temperature that it will cause problems with like the biochemical reactions that are keeping your body going right and so if it drops too much then the biochemical reactions can't proceed normally and so that starts shutting things down eventually the heart stops beating and then your body becomes depleted of oxygen and it starts producing toxic chemicals which then eventually can get up into your brain and then it's it's game over, right? Right. As this is happening, you're experiencing vasoconstriction where there is a decrease in blood flow and sort of it gets concentrated in your core to protect where all of the vital organs are. And yeah, so the important bits. It's it's basically like a kind of the physiological reasoning there is it's it's better to lose some toes than a kidney for instance so that's humans because as you said humans and mammals and birds in general are endothermic where we have internal metabolic mechanisms to maintain our internal temperature at sort of a a, a pretty constant high temperature also known as being quote-unquote warm-blooded and i did find some sources describing quote-unquote endothermic insects but there does seem to still be a little bit of a distinction between endothermic as it's used to refer to mammals and endothermic as it is selectively used to refer to certain kinds of insects the idea being you know broadly speaking endotherms maintain sort of a constant internal temperature versus ectotherms are really dependent on environmental conditions to determine what their temperature is, right? Right. Some sources talking about quote-unquote endothermic insects, the use of endothermic there seems to refer to insects, these insects having more deliberate internal mechanisms that they can use to maintain a higher than ambient internal temperature tend to be larger they tend to be flying insects most insects are what we would consider ectothermic where they are very responsive to external temperatures to determine their own internal temperature and so that's part of the problem in why it is difficult for them not only to continue living but just to function in general in the cold and if you are very familiar with insects then you will know that if you just cool an insect down they tend to go into you know a state of inactivity i remember when i was in high school and i was in my biology class and we like did a section on drosophila quote-unquote fruit flies you know it was like mendelian genetics using drosophila Right. Did you ever do one of these, Tessa? Yep, yep, in high school. Breeding horribly mutated Drosophila for science. Exactly. We would do crosses and then we would count out the phenotypes of the offspring. And what we would do is instead of killing them because we wanted to preserve them so that we could do more crosses, we would just have a dissecting microscope and we would have ice packs underneath our petri dishes and keeping the insects cool would keep them relatively inactive so that we could keep them alive but still deliberately look and is this male or female? Does it have this or that phenotype, et cetera, et cetera? 
also <laughs> the the drosophila inevitably got out and so that section of the building for a period of a couple of weeks every year would just have a bunch of just like yep. random fruit flies everywhere i seem to recall we had an issue with that too except a lot of the ones we were working with one of the mutations made their wings non-functional so they just never really got very far that's one of the classic ones there's like no wings there's two sets of wings which is Honestly, it's, it's very, very cool. We can't get into the genetics of Drosophila. What was I even talking about? Oh, if you just get an insect at a cooler temperature, then they will likely slow down. And so why is this, right? Like, why do cool temperatures decrease insect activity so much? So insects are typically ectothermic. They're reliant on environmental conditions to be active, so they are much more sensitive to relatively cooler temperatures. And many of the activities that insects do, for example, flying, are very energetically expensive. Flying takes really high metabolic activity to do. So even when you look at insects which are relatively active in cooler temperatures, they tend to be flightless insects because it is so metabolically costly. And because insects are small, Tessa, as you said, they are much more liable to lose heat very rapidly. It is basically that insects rely on external temperature to be an adequately high temperature to be able to do a lot of their activity. And so if it is cool around them, they do not have the same mechanisms available to them, typically as, for example, humans, to keep being equivalently active. Right. And because they're very small, they lose heat pretty rapidly. Because as you said, the sort of surface area to volume relationship is... is let's put it's let's put it this way it's not in their favor when it comes to heat loss and heat retention by which i mean it they lose the heat very quickly and speaking of you know just in terms of dealing with temperatures in general there are multiple kinds of of adaptations that different kinds of insects have for temperature regulation not even specific to overwintering so for instance morphologically some insects for example some bees, some moths have particular insulation around their abdomen through dense scales or hairs, or some of them that live in relatively cool environments have darker scales so that the energy that they absorb from solar radiation is much higher. They have behavioral adaptations where many insects will, in effect, shiver. You know, they will they will use their flight muscles to... Oh, I didn't know... Oh, wait, I did know that. Yeah, bees do that, don't they? Yeah. One example being when there's, like, an invader and honeybee hives, I think, they yeah. could, like, surround it and, <laughs> and basically shiver and heat it to death. Just pretty metal. Pretty metal. They will also... They can orient themselves towards or away from the sun to decrease or increase the amount of heat that they are getting from solar radiation, as well as moving in and out of sunlight altogether. So if it is a relatively cooler day, you might see insects more in the sun. If it is a very, very hot day, then they might take refuge in the shade. And then there are also physiological means, particularly in, like, in flying insects, which can regulate body temperature by regulating heat heat loss because the outline the the body plan of an insect is you got your head which has the brain such as it is eyes sensory organs most of them and mouth parts which are pretty straightforward and then you have the thorax which is like a big thick bundle of muscles because the thorax is the point of connection for both sets of wings 
and for all three legs. And then the abdomen is where all the gooey stuff is, right? More or less, where like the various, particularly the digestive and the reproductive systems are in the abdomen. So if you take an insect, for example, if you take a mantis, this is very, very clear, I think, in a way that it isn't in like a beetle or a fly. A mantis typically has a very clear difference between the head the thorax, the abdomen, and particularly in mature female mantises that you might see in the fall, they will have really large abdomens and they don't have highly sclerotized cuticles, meaning that their exoskeleton is relatively thin compared to a really crunchy guy, like a, a very hard beetle. Right. Like if you step on a scarab beetle, it's going to be a, it's going to be a, a sharper crunch than if you step on a mantis. Great way to quantify that. And I remember reading a paper once on mantises that described females as having, quote, voluminous ovaries, which I thought was very... Um, Certainly has an, gives you an image, yes. Yeah. And it's basically, if you see like a mature female mantis in the fall that's been developing eggs, it, it has a large, it, it has a visibly distended abdomen, which is the point that I'm trying to get at, where that is where all of the like soft stuff is this is relevant because there will be like heat generated in the thorax that then gets sort of not totally dissimilar to the system of warming floors that a lot of countries have where there will be like tubes running underneath the floor that carry heated and unheated water around so that it's sort of ambiently warm not totally dissimilar to that there will be through sort of the movement of hemolymph heat will go from the thorax into the abdomen and then can get diffused out of the abdomen to the surrounding air thereby cooling down the insect overall finally before we get into some specifics i wanted to clarify cold tolerance as a general idea versus freeze tolerance as a specific idea where overwintering basically requires the ability to live through colder than optimal temperatures and there are many different strategies for that but freeze tolerance has kind of a specific meaning of tolerating below freezing temperatures at which water forms ice crystals inside of the body because these things take different kind of strategies to deal with you can avoid freezing temperatures and just not have to deal with it you can super cool where you were able to get to well below the freezing point of water and then freeze tolerance is being able to come back from that physical freezing actually happening and all three of these we see in insects in different places so we've established why cold temperature is a problem how it affects insects how it affects humans so that's the question where do insects go when it's cold and i'm so glad you asked even though you didn't ask because now i'm going to answer But before I actually answer that question, I wanted to talk a little bit about insects that are always cold. Because here's the thing. Because here's the thing. There are many different ways that insects deal with cool, like very cold temperatures, well below optimal temperatures for most insects. And a lot of them involve long periods of inactivity in various stages of life. But There are some insects that are not only still active when it's cold, but they are only active when it's cold. And my favorite example of this is, well, it's hard to know exactly what to call them because they were originally described, I think, as a family within Orthoptera 
back in 1914. And then eventually they got their own ordinal status as Grilloblatodia. And now, in the past two decades, people, at least a, a couple of people have pushed for the downgrading of it from an order to a suborder alongside Mantophasmatodia, which was described as an order in 2002, and have them both be a single order, Notoptera. And I'm not going to get into this in more detail because I think it's probably extremely boring for everybody except maybe just me, but it would it would absolutely kill me <laughs> as a taxonomist by nature, not to mention that there is disagreement on what rank it should have and what its name should be. But I'm going to refer to them as Grilloblatodia because I think that's how you're going to find, if you're curious about them, that's how you're going to find most other information that is available about them. So their sort of name in the tradition, within the tradition of Linnaean taxonomy is Grilloblatodia. And their common name is sometimes given as rock crawlers or as ice crawlers. Tessa, do you know about these guys at all? I don't think so. I'm thrilled that today is the day that you learn about them. So they are basically omnivorous orthopteroid insects. Orthopteroid meaning that they are in the the same general area as orthoptera, which are crickets, grasshoppers, katydids, mm. etc. And that's sort of the major group within a clade of insects known as polyneoptera. Again, this is a lot of like inside baseball insect taxonomy stuff that I know I know that most people don't care about, but that's not, you know, that's not going to stop me. Uh, let's face it, the people who don't care aren't the people who listen to this podcast. I mean, hopefully, right? And so they if basically in your mind, I I want you to picture what would happen if you had a transporter accident where you combined a cricket and a cockroach. Okay. Are you picturing it? Yeah, yeah. And they're kind of orangey and they don't have any wings and they live in cool areas. And that's Grilloblatodia, basically. Gotcha. And they are generally known as a relic group. They have one of the most narrow ranges of any order or suborder of insects, where they are found only at, quote, high elevations in the mountains of China, Siberia, Japan, and the western United States and Canada. So the idea behind Grilloblatodia is that at some point in the past, they probably had bit of a broader distribution, but because they evolved to have a very narrow temperature tolerance range, they have essentially gotten stuck in the very small areas that they're still found in because there's no way for them to disperse out of them without moving through unbearable environmental conditions. So they're environmentally isolated. Yes. And so basically, Grilloblatodia is, is, is extremely highly threatened by climate change, not because of... <laughs> Not because of human problems, really, but just because they only live in very cold places. And as those cold places get smaller and smaller, they like they can't migrate northward or to higher elevations because they're already in the few places that they can still survive in the places that you find them. Unlike many insects, their ideal temperature is not warm. They can tolerate like negative eight Celsius up to like four Celsius. This reminds me a little bit of the ice worms they find in Alaska, which are not insects, they're a different class of invertebrates, but uh, they are obligate uh, psychophiles in that if the temperature temperature gets above about, I think, 5 or 10 degrees above Celsius, their enzymes will auto-catalyze and basically dissolve them. I'd, I don't know if that is 
the exact case with Gorilla Plutodia. Even the temperature of like, if you held one in your hand, it would be too hot for them and they would die. Oh, wow. One of the few videos that you can find that somebody has recorded of them, like walking around, they're holding like an ice chunk in their hand and they're rotating the ice chunk as the, the, the Gorilla Bladded moves along it because the, it, they have to hold the ice chunk instead right. of holding the insect because if they held the insect, they would kill it. They're known to have a, a pretty low metabolism, which gives them kind of an unusually long lifespan for an insect with estimates between five and up to 10 years. And I saw one source that even claimed that they didn't fully reach maturity until they were seven years old, which is very unusual for insects. I mean, that's very unusual even for mammals. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And they're relatively large. And by relatively large, it's still pretty small, but relatively large for cold-dwelling insects because you often see cold-dwelling insects. Like if you go up into the Arctic Circle in North America even, you'll see a lot of midges and and very small flies and stuff, but not a lot of things that like you could hold in your hand, theoretically, if you were Mr. Freeze, and be able to see details about its morphology. Right. And so the actual mechanism for cold tolerance is not known, again, because there's just not a lot of research on them. But it seems like their primary adaptation for dealing with cold temperature is to be relatively transient so that they can stay at a stable temperature. So as it cools down, they go find slightly warmer microhabitats. As it warms up, they go find slightly cooler microhabitats. So they're moving around a lot so that they don't have to deal with variation in temperature. They can just kind of stay at their ideal right around the freezing temperature of water. I love these guys though. They're great. It's a real, it's a, it's just a true dream of mine to like go on a pilgrimage, go find some because you're just so unlikely to see them. I have a bunch of places that I want to go specifically to see specific cool insects. No, that makes sense. I mean, birders have a life list. This is kind of the same thing. Yeah. Better. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry to birders, but come on, insects. Come on, come on, insects. Also, on the topic of supercooling, I found I'm including this specifically because I was reading today and I found an example in cockroaches and I was so excited about it because cockroaches never get to have any fun in terms of being held up as examples of cool stuff. And so in terms of uh, insects that produce ice nucleating agents, where basically they induce freezing in a controlled way, instead of just like it happening haphazardly, right? These cockroaches as an example of insects that have like anti-freezing agents in their bodies, right? And so it's the specific species Cryptocercus punctulatus. Context for Cryptocercus is that Cryptocercus is the only genus of the family Cryptocercidae, which is now known as the sister group to all termites. I think we've mentioned this before, but you know that termites, phylogenetically speaking, are They're eusocial cockroaches, basically. Yes. Hyper-specialized eusocial cockroaches, which was actually suggested multiple times over the 20th century in different places, but it didn't really stick definitively until about the past two decades when there were increasing molecular phylogenetic studies, which is another topic that we'll definitely do an episode on at some point, but not today. Today, right. the only point is that is important context because Cryptocercus are wood roaches, right? And so they live in variably rotting wood and they have cellulose digesting protozoa in their gut that enable them to digest and process cellulose, right? Which is in wood. Right. This is the thing that 
that basically categorizes termites also. And this similarity between the two of them is actually one of the points on which people were very confused about Cryptocercus through a lot of the 20th century on the basis that why would they share this with termites if they weren't closely related to termites? But if termites are the sister group to cockroaches and most cockroaches don't have cellulose digesting protozoa, what are we doing? Right. A lot of great articles that are extremely exciting to me, probably pretty boring to most people, but this is my podcast. Well, I imagine there, there was a lot of quiet drama involved in the back and forth as there yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so this is important in that they're basically the only research that I could found on this, like original research was from a thesis that was published in 1985 on Cryptocercus punctulatus, where they found ribitol, which I believe is how it's pronounced, which is uh, a polyol, uh, which is with sugars and proteins, categories of what are regularly present in insects as anti-freezing agents. The ribidol is like a five carbon alcohol, which they found present in Cryptocercus punctulatus. And the suggested explanation for this is that microbes produce significantly more five carbon sugars than animals and so because there are these cellulose digesting protozoa microbial endosymbionts inside the cockroach they suggested that the presence of these symbionts was the origin point that they might produce the alcohol or its precursors in the body and i thought that this was very cool those are among sort of some example some specific examples of insects that are still active when it is very cold sort of the the best known other examples are snow fleas which are not insects they are columbolins which are non-insect hexapods so they are arthropods they have six legs but they are not insects specifically and then also members of the family boreidae and mycoptera and if you think that i've mispronounced either of those you can go tell your mom and not me because I don't care. <laughs> um, where Macoptera are an order of hollow metabolous insects closely related to, I believe their sister group is is still believed to be Siphonaptera, which are the fleas. So Macoptera are known as scorpion flies because the males, their genital structure, they have like a bulbous genital structure at the end of their abdomen that sort of curls over their abdomen and makes it look like they have a scorpion tail. And that's how you can tell males from females and scorpion flies because females don't have that. They just have like a a normal tapering abdomen, like real losers. Hmm. And both of these are, are known to be active on as you can probably tell from their common names, snow and ice and cold conditions. Right. Okay, so all of that said, now we're getting to the actual answer to the question, where do insects go when it's cold? And there are a lot of answers to that. It's sort of conceptually a lot of overwintering strategy, where overwintering just refers to what happens over the winter. Right, as the name suggests. And it's pretty straightforward. A lot of overwintering strategy comes down to controlling whether water freezes in their bodies, how much, and under what conditions. And so insects overwinter in any stage of life that they spend any other part of the year in. So insects will overwinter as eggs, they'll overwinter as nymphs or larvae, they'll overwinter as pupae, and they'll overwinter as fully mature adults although that one is relatively uncommon. The first strategy that I wanted to mention just very briefly, which you actually mentioned earlier, is just leaving, not dealing with cold temperatures at all. And sort of the classic example of this here in North America is with monarch butterflies, which fully migrate into a warmer temperature 
and then they migrate back. And they're one of maybe, I don't think the only example, but certainly the best known example yeah, of that kind of- Yeah, there aren't a whole lot, but I, I, there are um, other butterfly species in Europe that do it as well. Yeah, it's, I don't, no offense to Lepidopterus, again, no offense to Aaron, friend of the pod, but I just can't, I just can't be bothered with most butterflies most of the time. But it is interesting that they have the same kind of two-way migration that a lot of birds have, where two-way migration meaning they start out in one place, they go to another place, and then they go back to the first place. And there's all kinds of really fascinating research on like, what are the cues that butterflies use? How do they manage this migration? Like, et cetera, et cetera. But we're not going to get into it right now because I refuse to, I refuse and I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so the next thing is just going through, you know, life stages from earliest the latest possible overwintering as eggs is relatively common where adults will physically mature they'll mate in the fall they'll lay eggs and then the adults will often in this strategy just die and they don't survive the winter but their egg cases do and sort of the one of the most classic examples of this is mantises so members of the order mantodia if you're listening to this you certainly have seen a mantis. <laughs> if not in person, then a picture. Mantises are the sister group to cockroaches and termites together, and then all three of them form a group frequently known as Dictyoptera. Mantises, one of the sort of the key characteristics that mantises share with cockroaches is that both groups make Uthiki, basically just egg cases. And cockroach egg cases tend to be, they, <laughs> they kind of look like cute little leather clutch purses. Tessa, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. They, they sort of, they have, basically, just imagine like a leather clutch and then imagine it coming out of the abdomen of a cockroach and you're basically there. Okay. Yeah, I can picture that. And if you need a visual reference, I would encourage you to think of the cover of the Animorphs book where they first morph cockroaches and much love to the guy who did the cover art for the original American copies, but it doesn't make any sense for the cockroach that Marco morphs into to have a protruding egg case based on the logic established in the lore of morphing. But I'll mm. forgive him. The guy who did those covers also sells them on Etsy. Signed. They're actually, I bought one of that cover. They're really nice quality prints. I really recommend it. Anyway, so those are cockroaches, but mantis egg cases, they don't carry them around with them. They basically extrude them onto twigs or branches or to the sides of buildings, some strong substrate, and they they make a very foamy substance that encases the eggs. It Essentially, it does foam up and it hardens around the eggs. And I tried to find more details on like mechanistically how this works like what is the insulation made out of basically just saying that it is foamy and it surrounds the eggs is as far as you can get without getting really into the weeds of specific proteins that don't even have a common name essentially that foamy material around the eggs works as insulation and it protects them as they go even in sub-freezing temperatures over the winter and then in the spring various cues cause them to hatch they usually hatch all at once often they will eat a lot of each other because they're 
generalist predators. And then they'll just develop, you know, step by step through the rest of the year until they get into the fall when they reach sexual maturity and in their final molt. The final molt that insects do, they get genitals and they get wings, if they have wings. And they use those genitals to connect them up with each other. They mate. Female mantises will often grow the before-mentioned voluminous ovaries full up of eggs, and then they'll lay egg cases, and then when it gets to be too cold for the adults, they'll just die. <clears throat> and But the eggs won't, and then the cycle continues again, where they only have just the single generation that happens every year. So that's sort of the, the classic, but not the only example of overwintering as eggs. And so then if we step into the next sort of stage of life, overwintering as nymphs or larvae where the difference between nymphs and larvae is really whether an insect is hollow metabolus or not where typically we use nymph to refer to hemimetabolus and comparable insects and then larvae to refer to that specific immature phase of hollow metabolus insects a lot of insects will overwinter as larvae particularly because the larvae will live inside relatively warm environments so like a lot of grubs i think will overwinter deep in the soil where you know it is not freezing as much as it would be above the soil or the european corn borer which is like a really established pest on corn crops they will overwinter at the last instar the last stage of being a larvae inside of corn stalks they are freeze tolerant they can survive freezing with the water in their body but not within cells which is kind of a, a, a common theme and so caterpillars grubs etc will often they'll live inside these different microhabitats, which are more stable and more warm than sort of surrounding habitat but i have two sort of specific things that i wanted to talk about one is a lot of freshwater, like aquatic insects, will overwinter in their nymphal stage in the water. And the reason that they can do this is that water, as we generally know, is much more sort of temperature stable. Right. Uh, has a higher heat capacity. So Yes. Yeah. And so basically a lot of these insects, unless they're living in very high altitude or uh, like very, very cold areas the water will continue the water will get colder but it won't freeze and even if it freezes at the top it's not going to freeze all the way through yeah. so they are protected from the dangers of sub-freezing temperatures by being in the water uh, because they aren't actually having to deal with as high of a variation in temperature as a fully terrestrial as we talked about mantises those adults are, are they're just dying. Yeah. But there is at least one stonefly nymph, which is known to be freeze tolerant, i.e. it can come back from fully itself freezing. And it's the species name is Nomura arctica, which is widely distributed through what the U.S. government uh, recognizes as Alaska. And its freeze tolerant strategy is most likely due to glycerol, where according to the sort of the the primary article that I found on it, quote, many freeze-tolerant insects prevent the formation of intracellular ice by producing extracellular ice nucleators that promote ice formation at high sub-zero temperatures, reducing both rate of ice growth and the probability of intracellular freezing. Ice growth in the in extracellular fluid excludes solute, increasing the osmotic pressure. This causes an osmotic flux of water out of the cells and results in intracellular desiccation that may eventually pose a challenge to survival. To mitigate the effects of intracellular dehydration, freeze-tolerant insects produce 
low molecular mass cryoprotectants such as glycerol. These cryoprotectants reduce the proportion of frozen water and have a stabilizing effect on proteins and membrane. Which is to say, if you are a freeze-tolerant insect, often you will have these ice nucleators outside of your cells that instead of being like, oh no, it's cold, how do we avoid freezing temperatures? How do we avoid the water freezing in our bodies? Sort of sort of an acceptance of, of environment of like, I'm here and it's gonna freeze. And so then exerting control over how and how much water freezes right. in the body. And part of that is using cryoprotectants such as glycerol, which reduce the proportion of frozen water and thus sort of stabilize the body overall, which is not the same as, but not 100% dissimilar to sort of what we talked about in terms of actual effective methods of protecting, for instance, frozen human organs through like vitrification where you are still freezing but by preventing the formation of just willy-nilly ice crystals you are keeping things much more stable so that there is not that same like mechanical stress on and around cells of things getting bigger and smaller and bigger and smaller or at least that is my impression as somebody who is (laughs) not in this area right And then another very interesting sort of overwent, like freeze tolerant in a larval stage is the Antarctic midge, Eremoptera murphii, which is in fact one of several invasive invertebrates in Antarctica. It, It has established an invasive presence in Antarctica. And you'd think if there was one place on Earth that didn't have to worry about invasive invertebrates, it would be Antarctica. But... You would be incorrect. And basically what this allows itself to do, it is freeze tolerant as both, or they are quote desiccation tolerant as both eggs and larvae. And what they do is that they essentially, as far as I can tell, fill up its body again with sort of antifreeze sugars and allows itself to be dehydrated by the surrounding soil. So it fills itself up with a replacement you know, fluid that is not going to freeze. And then the actual water gets pulled out of its body and it gets desiccated. And what's really interesting about this is that that is part of how it exists. That is part of how it is freeze tolerant, but in sort of a broader, like not ecological, but it's sort of a, a, a lifetime sort of the overall life strategy of how it is able to continue to thrive even in such an inhospitable environment is that it has parthenogenetic reproduction so it doesn't need to worry about synchronizing the timing of adult emergence which is a big problem with a lot of insects where if they are emerging as adults all at once that timing is really critical. If, if they're if they emerge too late for everybody else emerging, they're just completely out of luck, and they don't they they can't mate with anybody. But if you are parthenogenetically reproducing, i.e., what sometimes people like to call virgin birth, which eh, come on, but a sort of an evocative phrase, if you don't need to mate with anybody, you can just reproduce totally on your own schedule, which means that they can continue on making more of themselves without having to worry about timing themselves correctly with other adults. That was very interesting. And then I don't really have any notes for overwintering as pupae, because as I've specifically written in my notes, either because of the outsized popularity of Lepidoptera or because it's most typical in them, many sources on overwintering as pupae are about butterflies and moths specifically. And again, no offense to Aaron, friend of the pod, 
but I, <laughs> I just yeah. can't be bothered. But it's kind of, you know, it's the same idea of pupation is, is often a pretty inactive state. Inactive and literally you are not going around doing stuff. There are some pupae that are very active. For instance, mosquito pupae. You know, often pupae are like, it's more of an internal journey than um, a walking around and feeding on things kind of a journey. And so it, it's not really that remarkable that you would then be able to overwinter as something that is already not doing a whole lot. And then finally, we get to overwintering as adults, which we don't see as much from as far as I can tell. There are still a lot of insects that overwinter as adults. For instance, leaf beetles, aphids, leafhoppers, many other kinds of beetles. And similar to a lot of larvae, a lot of the strategy of overwintering as an adult is just finding a relatively warm, protective microhabitat and then just sort of hunkering in place until it gets warm again. So a couple examples of these microhabitats may be like inside layers of leaf litter, inside logs, inside on one side of a rock that is going to be protected from getting a lot of snow. So you still might be under snow, but you're not going to be as bothered about it. Like just finding relatively warm places and then going into a state of inactivity until it's warm enough to be active again. And I, I do want to draw a distinction. There is something known in insects known as diapause, which is often compared to hibernation. And I've also seen other people being like, diapause is not hibernation. And I think it really depends on how broadly you want to use the term hibernation to begin with. But according to at least one book that I read, diapause is specifically for pre-adult insects, where it is a cessation of growth um, and development, not just of relative inactivity. Because insects are among the arthropods that don't... Some arthropods just keep molting forever until they finally die. But insects don't do that. They have a set number of molts that they will go through in their life. And then when they get to the final molt, they develop, if they have them, wings and genitals, which basically is like, it's party time. You can disperse. You can go find each other. You can connect your genitals up and make more little insects. Right. Go have fun. And in fact, there are a lot of insects where they will, their final molt will have genitals and not mouth parts. And they, they, they don't eat at all. They are only adults so that they can mate and then die. For instance, botflies, which I also love, which makes them look really cute. Like they don't have any mouth parts, so they just have these perfectly round heads. I love botflies so much. Anyway, and another strategy, a particular strategy that a lot of adults might have for overwintering is finding a particular kind of warm habitat, uh, which may be indeed your home. Because if you think about it, it is often kept at a stable warm temperature but on the flip side of that a lot of insects may still die even if they you know are trespassers due to lack of appropriate food sources so that's basically kind of the story of overwintering as adults it's not that exciting particularly but when i was looking for information i did find a very very interesting specific insect in described in insects structure and function fifth edition of uh the cynipid which is a kind of wasp. It's a gall wasp. Gall wasp. Do you know what galls are actually, Tessa? They're like cysts, I guess for lack of a better term, that are formed by some insects in like trees and plants as a place to either pupate or lay their eggs. I mean, yeah. And sort of the best known example, at least the most popularly known as far as I can tell, 
of the gall-making insects are gall wasps, which are, I think, all parasitoids, where the distinction between parasite and parasitoid is generally given that parasites will not kill their host and parasitoids do kill their host. I think there's some disagreement about that, but... Listen, let's lay all our cards out on the table. There's disagreement about literally every formal term in biology <laughs> that you can possibly look at. That's just the nature of biology. And you just have to accept it and accept it into your heart. Anyway, so one strategy is having alternating parthenogenetic reproduction with sexual reproduction through alternating generations. So the example given in the text of insects structure and function is a species of sinipid gall wasp neuroteris lenticularis which forms galls on the underside of oak leaves and so this species overwinters as far as i can tell as adults in the galls on the underside of these leaves but only the females emerge in the spring then the females will lay unfertilized eggs on young leaves and then those eggs give rise to both haploid males and diploid females. Then that generation of males and females mate with each other. They lay eggs which are fertilized, and then those eggs produce the females that will then parthenogenetically reproduce the next spring. And so the answer, ultimately, to where do insects go when it's cold is... In some cases, they just straight up die. And in other cases, they haven't really left us at all. They've just gone where we can't find them. Unless you go rooting around in like leaf litter or turning over rocks and streams. But the good news is that even though they've left us, they're never very far away. And they'll be back sooner than later. Which I guess is a nightmare for some people. But it's a real dream for me. All winter long, I just sit at home and I'm, I get excited about the return of insect season. God, I love those guys. I mean, understandable. Oh, they're just the best. I mean, it is sad that they aren't around. But on the other hand, that gives me more time to bake. And then when it's too hot to bake, the insects are out. And in that way, God really does provide for us at all seasons mm. of our lives. Mm. <laughs> Take that theology straight to church. Well, Tessa, I hope that this has been an illuminating experience. It has. I've learned a lot. I'm so glad. I can't believe that we've gone so long without an insect episode. My solemn promise to the people of Earth is that we'll never go this long without talking about insects for a whole episode ever again. <laughs> Unless I die, I guess. In which case... You can do whatever you want. <laughs> you can do whatever you want with the podcast. As long as you don't badmouth insects. Oh, of course not. Never. Yeah. So happy fall, everybody. It's the season of death. Um, so get out there and think about the profound fragility of life. Well, I'm not going to say to find me on Twitter because who knows if Twitter will still even exist tomorrow. But Tessa, you can... Tessa, if, if people want to find you, where should they look? I mean... you may be able to find me on Twitter. Twitter still exists. But in the meantime, you can find me at my website, TessaFisher.com. If you are a trans, non-binary, etc. person who is in or around science, for instance, if you are a grad student, researcher, journalist, 
cockroach breeder and you would like to be a guest on the podcast, we are looking for guests. We have no more saved up guest episodes. So uh, there is a guest interest form that you can find through our website or you can email us asabpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Nicole Petkovich, friend of the show and previous guest. And if you like the show, please tell other people about it. <laughs> I guess if you think that they would like it, word of mouth is really the primary way that podcasts grow. And Tessa. And until next time, keep on sciencing.